Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Sainting, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Kat Taylor from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome to the show, Kat. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. Kat, I was just thinking about the fact that this is our fifth year of knowing each other. Yeah, it is. Time really flies. How does that feel? We've been in the program for five years. Uh, bizarre. I mean, it feels like the last year and a half just kind of like, didn't happen, but also somehow happened very slowly. Yeah. So yeah, it was strange to wake up one day and be a fifth year. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely like the pre-COVID graduate school and then the COVID graduate school. And I don't know, whatever this time is now. Post, Completely different. Really. Yeah. <laughs> So we are in the same department, but we study different things. Whereas I study, you know, cockroaches and how they run, you study people and you would call yourself a biological anthropologist, right? Yes. So what does that mean? What is a biological anthropologist? So biological anthropology kind of spans a lot of different subdisciplines. It includes everything from like bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology to like primatology and paleoanthropology so it's kind of got like a little bit of everything there's dental stuff in there there's genetics it's basically like an umbrella term for people who study humans or non-human primates in some way that's relevant to human evolution or just primate evolution in general I see okay how do you study people biologically like what are you looking at my dissertation is focused on understanding how bones change through infancy uh, childhood and adolescence so I'm really interested in growth and development of specifically the limbs, but of kind of the whole skeleton. So you're looking at bones and then yeah. you said you're looking at development. So that means you're studying skeletons from people who died uh, young in life and older in life. And you're kind of getting the spectrum of what their skeletons look like over time. Yeah. So I'm really interested in how crawling and walking sort of change the way that the human skeleton looks and the relative strength of different bones while you go through the process of like infancy to kind of crawling and then toddling around up into like walking like an adult human. So humans are really interesting because we're like the only ones that really have this weird crawling phase in relation to other non-human primates. So as I'm sure you and everybody knows, human babies are really sort of helpless for the first few months of their lives. It takes a few months for them to even be able to lift their heads, much less crawl and, you know, walk normally which is pretty unusual in terms of primates. So other great apes definitely do have a period where they're, you know, relatively helpless, but they transition to the sort of adult locomotion a lot more quickly than humans do. So I'm really interested in this sort of in-between phase where human babies are moving around without necessarily being, you know, attached to their parents physically, but also not being able to fully locomote like an adult. So one of the things that's really interesting and previous work has shown when infants are crawling, their arms are relatively stronger than like their lower legs than their tibiae because all of their body weight is being put on their arms at that point in their lives. So when they're moving around in their environment, all of their body weight is on the femur and on the arms. And then as they sort of develop into walking more normally on two legs, then the legs become relatively stronger and the arms sort of decrease in their relative strength. So I'm really interested in like that section of time and sort of getting a deeper understanding of the variation in humans because humans vary a lot 
and also just like how strong these signals are. So our bodies generally, like our bones are remodeling as we use different parts of our body, essentially? Uh, yeah, so there's, we don't fully understand how bones respond to loading uh, exactly, but a lot of studies have shown that bones are more responsive to remodeling or to modeling, I guess in this case, before puberty. So in, uh, that's why I'm so interested in childhood and infancy and adolescence, because that's the time period where whatever you're doing with your bones, it's going to have the greatest effect on them, on their morphology in adulthood. Right. So once you, once you actually reach adulthood, it's not so much like, there's definitely still a signal there usually, but it's not as strong. So essentially once you reach adulthood, your bones are not going to get much bigger than they already are you can kind of slow down the rate at which they deteriorate, oh. <laughs> um, but you can't really like put on a lot of bone mass or bone morphology after, after you reach adulthood. So that's why childhood and adolescence is a really interesting time. So for the rest of it, like for you and me, it's just kind of like staving off the inevitable. We can't actually improve. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so do you have, you have like a lot of skeletons to look at? Yeah, so I'm actually using this really awesome uh, database. It's called the New Mexico Decedent Imaging Database. And it is, they have thousands of individuals and it's made up of people who died in the state of New Mexico between 2010 and 2017. So there's a, unfortunately, quite a few children and adolescents in there, which is very sad, but does provide a unique opportunity to look at recently living humans in like a modern sort of society, a modern American society and see what's going on with them. And so you aren't actually working with any physical samples. You just are looking at electronic data. Yeah. At this point, I'm, I'm completely uh, digital. I'm looking at CT scans, although I do miss being hands-on and working in museum collections. You would have been doing that pre-COVID? Uh, that was the plan, uh, but you know, we were entering what our fourth year in the three months into the pandemic. So I kind of figured that it was time to figure out how to continue making progress on the dissertation while also still doing something close to what I had planned. Right. For sure. Are you like actually doing something with digital representations of bones or are you just kind of getting numbers out of databases? No. So uh, basically what happens is I open up a CT scan and depending on the individual and how old they are and how big they are, um, it might be like one whole body scan or a few individual scans based on you know, different parts of their body. But one of the nice things about working with CT scans is that a lot of the CT analysis software have features that make it easy to measure things like bone strength. So basically what I do is I go in and I uh, segment out the bones that I'm interested in and you know take some linear measurements and some area measurements uh, and then also use the software to help me calculate moments of area within each each bone at different points. So that's one of the nice things about working with CT scans is it makes it a lot easier to take those measurements. Yeah, definitely. Have you started to get those results? Not yet. I'm still in. I'm still deep in the uh, data collection phase. 
but hopefully within the next few weeks, I'll have enough that I can start getting a good idea of, you know, the bigger picture, like what, what the results are actually showing. Okay. So that sounds like a really interesting uh, project and I'm really interested to hear more uh, once you start to get the data and analyze it, or I guess you've already started, but once you get it all and analyze it, but that's not the only thing you study, right? I remember writing a short article about your research a little while back where you weren't even looking at humans, right? You were looking at um, other primates. So can you tell us a little bit about that project as well? Yeah, exactly. So um, I don't only work with humans. I do work with non-human primates and with some hominid fossils as well. So the other project, the one that you're talking about, is analyzing a huge assemblage, actually two assemblages of fossil monkeys uh, from Ethiopia. So the two assemblages are between 100,000 and 160,000 years old. Yeah, so that project is basically looking at what types of monkeys were found in these assemblages, what they look like, how they compare to modern stuff. Okay, so is this project similar to the experience or to the project you're working on with people in that you're kind of working with digital representations of these bones? No, so this project, we actually, my co-authors and I actually went, this was pre-pandemic, so we were in the National Museum of Ethiopia, um, actually, with the fossils themselves. And you, you were taking, like, physical, like, calipers and rulers and, like, actually measuring the bones, the fossils. Yeah, exactly. So good old pre-pandemic days where you could actually, you know, be hands-on. We did take a whole bunch of linear measurements as well as like qualitative stuff, uh, descriptions and things like that. And also photographs so that we could go back and take measurements of different osteological features, like angle measurements later after we left the museum. Angle measurements, like how the bones and the limbs attached to the rest of the body, you mean? Yeah, so there are certain features, especially with non-human primates, where if you're trying to figure out sort of the mode of locomotion of a primate, then there are some features of like the angle of the medial apocondyle of the humerus, for example, that can sort of help you figure out if that particular monkey was more active in the trees or more active on the ground. Okay. And so why would you care if the monkeys were more active in the ground or in the trees? So one of our goals of this project where we're looking at all these fossil monkeys is to determine what kind of monkeys they are. And one of the things that can help us do that is to figure out what they were doing. So especially with like some of the Cercopithecin monkeys, they have a very generalized postcranial skeleton. So they all kind of look relatively similar, but there are like small differences between the super arboreal species and the super terrestrial species and getting a good understanding of what these monkeys were doing in their environment can help infer what the environment was like and also what kind of monkeys we have in each assemblage. I see. What was the descriptor term you used for the monkeys? Thercopithecin. And what is that? What what does that mean? So Thercopithecins are a group of monkeys that contain like Gwenins and vervets. They're kind of smallish, old world terrestrial, well, not terrestrial, semi-terrestrial to arboreal. In contrast to like the colobines who are like colobus monkeys who are very arboreal or like the papionins, like baboons and stuff who are pretty terrestrial. Oh, I see. So this type of monkey can kind of occupy kind of like an inner, like an interface between a savanna and a forest. 
Yeah, so one of the interesting things about these assemblages of monkeys is that we have kala beans, we've got the super arboreal monkeys, we've got papionins, the very terrestrial monkeys, and we also have circopithecines, which can kind of go in between the two. And so are you looking over a period of time or is it kind of, do you, can you not really differentiate in time with the way that the fossils have been collected? I mean, they're like all in a similar geological time span. So there's actually two beds that we're looking at that are about somewhere roughly 60,000 years apart, but they're very close together. So that is really nice because it they're geographically close and they're temporally relatively close. So it gives like a really good picture of what was happening in that area in that time period. Right. And so the idea would be like, it has there been a shift in animals that look like they like to climb trees versus animals that look like they like to walk around on the ground in that from the earlier time bed to the later time bed? Yes, exactly. Cool. Have you analyzed those results? Uh, we actually have three manuscripts that are uh, currently under review. So stay tuned. Nice. So I guess we'll, we'll have to wait for those to come out to. Yes, hopefully within the next few months. <laughs> I see. Cool. Well, that all sounds really interesting. So I guess the common theme between those two projects is that you're mostly focused on the limbs. Yeah. Postcrania are very interesting to me personally. Postcrania being limbs and the like trunk. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you, you're interested in basically anything below the neck? Essentially. Yes. I got you. Cool. Um, is that kind of a, so you mentioned biological anthropologists is like, includes lots of different people. So within that, you kind of have to stake out some space, I guess. Uh, and so on, you've one taken to skeletons. So you are a like skeleton bone scientist. Yeah. Yeah. And then two, you've taken the space below the neck. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, essentially. What is that kind of how you have to, how you would have to frame your career or how like, like that's the level of space on the human body that you have to uh, decide to be, um, to stake out a career in biological anthropology? I mean, I don't think you have to do it that way. There are definitely people that focus their research more on like specific areas of the body, like the pelvis or the shoulder. Um, there's a lot of people who focus on teeth or on, you know, craniodental stuff in general. I don't think it has to be that way, but for me, I just, I don't know. I've always really liked post-crania. I can't really explain why. I just think that, I mean, heads are cool too, but. <laughs> you like uh, the stuff that actually does the moving? Yes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Is that, is that why it's interesting? Because there's kind of that, like, even though you're looking at a skeleton and so it's just the bones, essentially, you, you have to infer all of this stuff about how the animal actually moved. And then you're kind of looking at it from that angle of like levers and things like that, thinking about the physics of that movement. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I've always been like really interested in locomotion so I think that's sort of why I gravitated towards studying postcrania, because I think that the way that particularly primates move around and the differences in different species 
has always been really interesting to me. So yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Why are you interested in locomotion? That's a good question. I think probably because within primates, like we do th- different primates do such different things in terms of locomotion. Like you have everything from humans who are bipedal, which is, you know, bizarre in and of itself. Then you've got like orangutans who brachiate and you've got knuckle walkers and you've got arboreal quadrupeds and terrestrial quadrupeds and like everything in between. So I think it's just the amount of variation. I've always been really interested in how things vary. So I think that since there's so much variation in locomotion in primates, I think that's really what, what got me interested. Did you choose locomotion as something that, or locomotion was something that interested you and then primates were the most variable group to look at or was it people first and then locomotion second or you know primates first and then locomotion second I think it was primates first and locomotion second why primates I mean why not they're fascinating we're primates you know I I think that primates are a really fascinating group of animals and you know we're so weird in so many different ways but like understanding how, understanding the similarities and differences between us and other non-human primates. I don't know. It really gives me a a better understanding of like humanity and what humans are and how we fit into the wider world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, but then it's so interesting that you, so you focus in on primates and people because, you know, like you're interested in the uniqueness of people, but then you kind of think about this locomotion, which seems so like everything, you know, or like all the animals locomotion, you know, it seems like something that's so not unique to people. I mean, I guess there is the very unique way that people walk, but you know, when I think of people talking about the uniqueness of people, I think of like, oh, humans have big brains or they have thumbs or they have tools, you know? So it's interesting that you chose like this just very physical body function. Why is that? I don't know. I think I've, I've been interested in in human evolution since I was a child. And one of the things that really interested me was how we went from walking on all fours to, you know, walking on two legs, because that's just such a, an interesting transition because we're really the only ones that do that in any, you know, long-term sense. I mean, birds do it. That's true. <laughs> but they're <laughs> dinosaurs. How, how long ago did you decide to be somebody who studied primates? Was that like uh, you studied primates in undergraduate? Yeah, I, I think I've always been really interested in like anatomy and in bones, like my whole life. And for a while, I wanted to go to vet school because I thought that was, or med school, mostly vet school. But I thought that was really the only way that you could like have a career that centered around like anatomy and bones. Um, so then when I was in college and I figured out that, you know, you could go to grad school for things that weren't medicine or veterinary medicine, <laughs> then I sort of, that sort of helped me get interested in primates was taking some classes in, as an undergrad and realizing that this was actually a viable career trajectory. Did you take on research opportunities in undergrad once you figured out that this was a viable path of being a researcher and going to graduate school? Yeah, so I was really lucky as an undergrad and that I got to study abroad for my junior year. Um, So I went to the University of Edinburgh and I ended up taking a bunch of courses that I sort of 
like felt a little bit outside of my comfort zone that I thought were interesting, but weren't really what I was intent on studying. And those ended up being things like biological anthropology and archaeology and forensics and stuff like that. So then when I came back for my senior year, I took a course on human evolution with Johannes Haile Selassie at Case Western. And I had the amazing opportunity to actually go to the field with him for the second half of my senior year as an undergrad. Um, so that's really what got me hooked was doing field work in Ethiopia for a few months. And then I was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm learning so much. And, you know, yeah, that's really what got me hooked, I think. So did you go then right on to graduate school once you had seen like, oh, second half of my senior year, I want to do this? I did not. Um, I took a gap year because I, for a couple of reasons, one of them was that I had missed the uh, application deadlines because I didn't know what I really wanted to do yet um, my senior year until I went to Ethiopia and I really got very interested in human evolution. So no, I did take a gap year, which I'm very happy that I did now. <laughs> Because it was, you know, a, a breather, a little bit of a breather before diving into graduate school. Did you just kind of have fun or did you like do things that prepared you for graduate school in that gap year? Uh, I did an internship at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History where I was continuing my uh, undergrad thesis work with uh, Professor Haile Selassie. So I continued my research into the fall and then I took the second half off just to have fun. Nice. Relax a little bit. Nice. <laughs> Travel as much as I could before moving out to California. Yeah. Did your undergraduate professor help you get in touch with uh, your current graduate advisor? Yeah. So actually, uh, my undergrad mentor, Professor Haile Selassie, he was a graduate student in integrative biology. Tim White was his advisor. So it was sort of a, a nice natural step. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people that I talk to on this show, and I guess in general in graduate school, have connections to thank for things. And it's very much a, you know, who do you know kind of way to get ahead, I guess, in academia. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that one of the things that a lot of undergrads don't realize is that that is a very important thing. You know, I didn't really realize it until the second first semester of my senior year, I guess. That's one of the things that I really wish that undergrads knew while they're still in college and not towards the end of it so that they had more opportunities. As you move forward in your career, you plan to get like an academic research position. Um, I hope to, yeah. I guess like, is that kind of, you know, what you've been doing in graduate school, you know, looking at bones and just kind of looking for certain ways that, you know, loading changes, things like that. That's like what, questions you'll continue to ask as you move forward? Probably in some capacity. I'm sure that my questions will change as I, you know, continue doing research. But as of right now, ontogeny and locomotion are still very interesting to me, even, you know, after a few years of, of studying them. So, I mean, people know about anatomy of humans and people have been studying the human body for so long. It's just kind of interesting that um, there can be so much active research on human anatomy still. Do you think it's just like a field that can, you know, like there's still so many unanswered questions and you're still gonna be 
asking like every question that gets answered just leads to a new question do you think yeah so people have definitely been studying humans for a very long time i mean obviously humans are interested in in humans and why we are the way we are i think that a lot of anthropological research has been very racist and had very racist undertones and intentions so i think that there's a a really big push now to be aware of the the past of uh, biological anthropology and of anthropology overall, and to consciously make the effort to do better. One of the things about biological anthropology is that historically, um, scientists have sort of sought out research studies and traits that would support their ideas of uh, racial hierarchy. And so a lot of the early research about human anatomy and the biology of humans was sort of tainted by this, by, by the racist way that the world worked. So I think that, yes, of course, new question or new studies are going to produce new questions, et cetera. But I also think that there is a lot of research going into sort of undoing the harm that has been done in whatever way can, in whatever way is possible. And sort of going back to some of those older ideas that people had and showing that if when you're actually doing the science properly, those racist ideas don't actually have any scientific underpinning and that it was just bad science. That's a great point. Yeah, it's so interesting how, I guess it's the same with all science, right? That uh, it gets kind of affected by the people studying it but especially in the context context of humans, people are going to want to draw the conclusions that they want even more when it's about themselves. Certainly. And I think people, scientists in the past have definitely, they, they picked and chose what they wanted out of the data to support their understanding that certain races were superior to others or whatever, which biologically has absolutely no truth whatsoever. And I see like your research is very, you know, this universal experience, right? It's like something that isn't affected by evolutionary or racial or cultural backgrounds, right? The transition from crawling to standing up is kind of just like, that's the way humans physically grow from baby to child to adult. But, um, you know, with more, uh, with other kind of, studies maybe that look at differences maybe across like adults or something like that. Um, How do you kind of ask and answer questions where you kind of are looking at differences among groups um, without like kind of devolving into sort of how it used to be where people would kind of look at data to try to draw conclusions that were, I guess, either implicitly or explicitly racist or culturally insensitive? I think that the most important thing to understand is variation. So you said, um, you know, humans go from crawling to walking and that's just like a thing that humans do. But actually there's a lot of variation even within that. Like not all babies crawl. Some of them go straight to walking. Some of them kind of like butt scoot instead. Some people just army crawl and then go straight to walking from there. So there's so much variation just within that little time period. And I think that's the most important thing when you're thinking about studying humans is understanding that 
whatever groups you're trying to study, there's going to be so much variation within that group that that group's not necessarily going to be super different than a different group. So like when people put people into racial categories, which don't have any biological basis, they're really ignoring so many different things. One of them being that, that there is no biological basis for the races that we talk about today. And that the amount of variation within whatever group is going to be really big and potentially even larger than the variation between two different groups. Right. So I think that's one of the important things that we have to pay attention to is that humans vary a lot, but also we're very similar in a lot of ways, even to people that are from completely different parts of the world. So unfortunately, it looks like we're running out of time on the interview. Usually at the end of the interview, we give our chance, give a chance for our guests to talk about anything they would like to talk about. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Genetically, there's more variation within a subgroup of chimpanzees than there is in all of humans on the planet. So that's definitely like a really interesting thing to think about when you think about like, you know, how people might be very different, but genetically we're all more similar than two chimpanzees are to each other which i think is really cool it really puts it in perspective that like we we're all very similar yeah that's wild today i was joined by kat taylor from the department of integrative biology we talked about her research on bones of humans and non-human primates um, and how she tries to use the measurements of limbs to draw conclusions about how these animals and people moved in life. Thanks again for being on the show, Kat. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.